Hey guys, Pastor Jurgen here. I'm so glad you're tuning into one of our powerful messages that is guaranteed to absolutely elevate your life to another level. At Awaken, we only want to preach fresh, real, powerful to help you grow stronger in your walk with God, develop your faith so you can take more territory. I'm praying that God blesses you and enriches your soul as you listen to this amazing word from God. God bless you. I'm honestly, I'm honestly, there's like a little part of me that I'm, I'm like surprised anytime somebody wants me to come back and teach a second time because I'm like, why? I, I know that I have a weird job. I'm a therapist. That means my job is to like go into the tunnel. My, my job is to go into the dark. It's like go into the room that nobody wants to go into. Like Pastor Matt was talking about the, you know, what it feels like to get, get into the fight on the way to church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who, who's done that? The rest of you are lying. <laughs> Get into a fight on the way to like that is my favorite thing. When people get into a fight on the way to therapy, they walk in really tense and they're frustrated and they sit down and they usually apologize, which is so strange. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, we got into it on the way here. I'm like, that's perfect. That's awesome. I just I just have walked through the dark so many times with so many people, and I've seen God work in the wilderness in my life, I have now come to, I associate the wilderness with the promised land. I associate the dark with the breakthrough and the light that's on the other side because I've seen God do it so many times. So the fact that people resonate with that is such a sacred thing to me. Um, I had this really dialed in message. And then yesterday on the flight, I felt like there was this little bit of a curveball. So I'm going to try and give you three messages in 30 minutes. Last service went two and a half hours, so I'm pretty sure I can do it this time. No. There was, there was something where, I've been doing the Bible in a year. Anybody else doing the Bible in a year? Oh my gosh. I cannot even emphasize enough how, how powerful that is. I was doing the Bible in a year, and basically every, every time I've gotten the opportunity to teach the message just comes straight out of the revelation that's coming through because it's so powerful to just like in these little bite-sized chunks be walking through the story and then you stand back and you can see not just the power of one individual story, right? You can see the power. Oh, look, God is, every story is individual. Every story is connected. God is doing this big thing. And there was this thing that hit me several weeks ago um, in the book of Exodus where Israel's kind of... um, their journey as a nation really starts because when they go into slavery, they're very, very small. And then they spend 400 years in slavery and they multiply like bunnies. By the time Israel is done with slavery, they're a massive nation. And God does this incredible thing and he sends miracle after miracle, just like demonstration of power after demonstration of power till the most powerful empire in the entire world, the Egyptian empire at the time, doesn't just say, okay, you may go, but they're so terrified of the God of Israel, the power of the God of Israel, that they actually like pour out their wealth and weapons and say, please leave. We can't stand against your God. And there's this moment right as they're leaving that I had never caught this before, that in, in Exodus 13, there's a moment where this is, this is what Moses writes down. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though it was shorter. Somebody say shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt, which means returning to slavery, which means that's shocking that God knew if I take you straight to the land of the Canaanites, straight to the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, I've already got it picked out. It's not like I I haven't decided where to put you. If I take you straight there, 
the giant, the giants that you're going to have to face to take possession, the things that I have anointed, called, uh, purposed you to do, the things that I have purposed you to overcome, the house that I have purposed you to buy that doesn't make any sense, the job, the business to start, the marriage that's going to be restored in your life, the thing that I purposed you to do, you're not ready to do it. So you're going to see that mountain and you're going to see failure before you even try. And you'll actually turn around and run back to slavery. And so he says, I actually took them on the long road on purpose. I took them on the long road because I love them. I took them on the long road because the promise that I have for them means something to me. I wanted to develop them. And so he actually leads them in to the wilderness. And they stay there for about a year, about 13, 14 months. And so there's this really important revelation for me when I read that. And I realize, you know, so many times in my life where I, I've desperately wanted breakthrough in something. And I've, I've had a moment where my faith gets activated. Maybe I'm, I'm in an amazing church service and Pastor Loren is, is preaching fire and, and I don't have the faith to believe for my breakthrough, but I can tell that she has the faith to believe for my breakthrough, right? And so I borrow her faith in that moment and I raise my hand and I come down, I get prayer and then that leads to deliverance. And I have this powerful encounter with God and the power of death and the grave gets broken off my life. But then I wake up like, a week later, and it's still difficult. The challenge isn't miraculously easy. I'm still, I still get into fights with my wife. I still wonder if she trusts me. I still fear that we might never get past this, right? It's still hard. And because the power moment initiated a process of transformation, and it didn't just drop me into the promise. Because the process is actually what prepares us for the promise. Are you with me? Because the power didn't absolve us from the process. We doubt the power. And we're going to go, we're going to go face the giant. or We're going to face the wilderness. We're going to face this season of, of development. And we make the conclusion, oh, something went wrong. God's not with me. I'm not good enough. I, I'm not pleasing him. Why is this still hard? Maybe my faith isn't strong enough. And I make the mistake of, inter- of, of misinterpreting the fact that God is actually developing me right here. And I interpret that as God has actually left me. Are you still with me? So if we fast forward a year in Israel's story, because so far on time, I'm doing a lot better. Um, (laughs) If we fast forward one year, Israel has been in boot camp. Israel has been in the wilderness for 13, 14 months. Every single day, Israel wakes up and they have no food. They've got no farm. They've got no agriculture. They've got no like wild animals to go hunt. They rely every single day, waking up the next day, trusting. You know, yesterday and today, we woke up and there was manna on the ground, and we had everything we needed. But the manna goes bad every single night. It it won't carry over to the next day, except on the Sabbath. That's a different preach. It goes bad every single night. Why would God do that? Because God wanted to train his people. I want you to get comfortable in not being in control. I want you to get comfortable not being able to predict the certainty of your future. I want you to get comfortable applying for a house that doesn't make any sense because if you're not comfortable with it, you won't take the risk. And so they spend a year. They spend a year in boot camp. They spend a year in this training process in the wilderness. And then about 13, 14 months after they cross the the Red Sea in this miraculous demonstration, right, the Red Sea parts, they come to the land of Canaan and Moses sends a scout troop. He sends a little troop of scouts, 12 guys, one representative from each tribe, sends them into the promised land. I say, I want you to go res- uh, survey the land because we're going to take the land. 
And so this, this troop of 12 men go into the promised land. They go into the land of Canaanites. And they come back. And this is the message. This is what they deliver to Moses. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us. And it does, in fact, flow with milk and honey. It is everything God said it was going to be. It's the best thing we've ever seen. Here's its fruit. But the people. Somebody say, but the people. Who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak. The descendants of Anak are the Anakites, and there are people that are rumored to be like giant warrior giants. And so what are they doing? They're saying, yes, the land is good, but it's too dangerous, but it's too powerful, but they're too strong. And if you keep reading in Numbers 13, it actually goes on to say that those men, 10 of the 12 men, 10 of the 12 of them actually start to spread a story amongst the people of Israel, a story about fear that turns Israel into the point where they're grumbling so hard they refuse. They basically say, why have you brought us out here to die? 10 men poison Israel with fear. And two men stand up for it. Only one, Caleb. Caleb is actually the only guy that speaks up and says, we can take the land. Surely God is with us. He's the only one. And so there's this moment where we have to realize that Israel has been in training for an entire year, training for this moment, training to go into a land and face an obstacle that they are not strong enough for. We are not powerful enough to take down multiple fortified cities of giant warriors. But that's not why God called us to it. He called it to it so that he would be known in the world so that the world would see that the God of Israel is powerful, that the God of Israel is strong. And they got into that land. They saw that adversity and they saw fear. They skipped their training. They skipped the opportunity. What? Because if you go back and you read the whole season of the wilderness, you're going to read a couple of sentences go on repeat. A couple of sentences are just a broken record. One thing, and Israel grumbled against the Lord. Those words, I have no idea. They're probably, probably 20 times in the, in the book of Exodus. And some, some form of the sentence, why did you bring us out here to die? They say it again and again and again. Every single time they, fa- they wake up and there's no food. Why did you bring us? They wake up or they're going a couple of days and they've run out of water. Why did you bring us out here to die? And then God brings water out of a rock. Yeah. Again and again and again. They see uncertainty. They see this vulnerability. And they say, why, why have you betrayed us? And so this, this is what shook me. I, I promise the rest of the message is a little bit more upbeat than this. <laughs> this is what shook me. In the very next chapter... God is responding to the fact that these 10 men have poisoned Israel. Israel is absolutely not, we won't go, we will fail. And so this is what God says to that generation, the oldest generation of Israel. So tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I have heard you say. In the wilderness, your bodies will fall, every one of them 20 years or older, who was counted in the census and has grumbled against me. And what God is saying, this is like, this is like a, a crazy moment. I, I, it actually like reframed what the loss of the, of the promised land meant for me. Because I, I used to look at this moment, I used to think, oh, this is the moment. Israel had it, and then they lost it here. And you read it in context of why did God spend 14 months in the wilderness? You realize, 
Israel actually didn't lose it here. It just got revealed here. Israel lost it. Every day they woke up in the wilderness and they focused on scarcity. They woke up in the wilderness and they focused on the thing that they didn't have. And they used that vulnerability, that fear, that anxiety, and they turned against God. And they grumbled against him. Where are you? They lost it every single time they rehearsed death. Are you with me? And he says to them, okay, you have spent the last year, the last 13, 14 months, you spent the last year praying and speaking death over your life. You keep saying that you are going to die in the wilderness. If that is what you are committed to, if that's where you place your trust, then I am going to let you have that outcome. And he says, okay, I'm going to let that generation, the oldest generation, I'm going to let you guys spend your life here. And he protects them. He provides for them. He goes with them. And he waits for that generation to die. And then he raises up a new generation. And so that's where, that's kind of where I came to. And when I was sitting on the plane with my wife, we're talking about, man, what was the next step? How did God take them from a generation of Israelites who skipped training, who wanted to love God, they wanted to know God, they believed in God, but they skipped the training and they didn't have the trust to enter the promise. How did they... It was Joseph. Joseph was this link. And if you look at Joseph's life, there is, there is a powerful demonstration. What does it look like to train? So before we even look at Joseph's life, let me, if you guys have that slide, to me, it is so helpful. It is so helpful. There's a, a guy named Dallas Willard, brilliant theologian, and he broke down the, the three core ingredients, the three core elements of spiritual growth, and he made this triangle. And he says, the, the, I'll tell you why this feels helpful. First of all, it's simple, and I'm simple. I sound really nerdy up here, but I promise you, I'm a very, I like simple, because simple, I can, I can hold on to simple things, right? And so he starts with, first and foremost, all spiritual growth, all spiritual transformation starts with the action and the power of the Holy Spirit. There is no new unless God causes you to be reborn, right? The, the Holy Spirit has to fill you with power if you want to step into the promise that the Holy Spirit has for you. All transformation starts with the power of the Holy Spirit. He says there's, this, there's another, another bucket that we actually, we tend to, most churches tend to spend a, a good amount of time investing, and that's what we call spiritual discipline, spiritual discipleship. Yeah. Spiritual discipleship is where we do in our power the things that empower us to rely on God to do the things that are outside of our power. What is, that, what is an example of that? I don't have the power to orchestrate the universe, to, to allow us to step into a house that we shouldn't, logic and culture says we, don't, we should not be able to buy this house. I don't have that power. I do have the power to wake up every day and start my day with prayer. I do have the power to wake up every day and look at every adversity. The fact that Rich can tell you there were 14 moments means every single time the world said no, Rich said, let's see what God does here. And then, and this is equally powerful, when God showed up, when God provided the manna, when God provided the water out of the rock, when God provided the tax waiting right there in the mail, the moment he needed it, Rich and his wife were able to say, that was God. And they were able to say, this is your provision. This was your power. This is not us. We weren't lucky, right? Our ability to walk in what we can control in our power is the thing that empowers us to walk in God's power. Are you tracking? We call that discipleship. It's covering and practice. And this last bucket is the thing that I think gets neglected the most. I'm, it's my favorite bucket. Not favorite, that's the wrong word. It is, it is a bucket that, I, that excites me because of my weird job. So when you think about how does God grow us up? How does God spiritually grow and transform us? It starts with the power of his spirit. 
right? God's power. Yeah. It, it transforms, it, it takes us to a point where now we have to, so we've gotten the revelation and now we need to do the reps, right? We need to wake up and spend time in God's word. We need to wake up and talk to him for myself. I can't just rely on our pastor's ability to talk to God. I need to talk to him myself. I need to go into confession, right? I need to go to my pastor, go to my accountability, go to my friends, my brothers, my sisters. And I say, hey, I'm struggling with this. I need to be seen. And by doing that, it prepares me to actually experience the trial, not as abandonment, but as training. So one of the things that this, that is a really easy way to see this is the word confession. The word confession has been hijacked by religiosity. When I grew up, I thought a confession is like you go to a pastor or a priest and you just tell them about how crappy you are, right? You tell them about like what a, just a ridiculous failure you are. I sinned again. Confession in the Bible is a very, very different word. The confession, and particularly in the New Testament, it's in the Latin, it says confessore is the root word of the word confession. Fessore means to stand, to stand in something. Con is the Latin for with. So when you enter into confession, when you, like James tells us, confess your sins one to another so that you may be healed, what you're doing is you are breaking agreement with the sin. You're breaking agreement with the fear. You're breaking agreement with the lie that this is all you can expect or this is what you're capable of. And you're standing in agreement with who God says about you, what, who God says you are, what God says is true, where God is taking you, what God is doing in your heart. That when we think of a confession, what we want to think is, I am standing in agreement with God when I confess the struggle, when I confess the, the challenge, when I confess the moments where I fail and fall, and when I confess the moments where God shows up and I speak them out to another, man, God provided. I had the thing that I needed right there. The, it, they shouldn't have accepted my offer. It was 10% less than the other offer for some reason. All of that is confession. We're standing in agreement. And so we, if we take those, those are those fundamental building blocks. How do we train? It always looks like something from these three buckets. We rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. We enter into what we have power to enter into, right? What can we do here? And we, this is the toughest one. Because James teaches us this really weird sentence. I was really lucky. When I was 19 and I started following God, my mentor, my mentor taught me, he said, Brian, the first thing I want you to memorize is James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 which is a really crappy first verse to memorize. It's not an encouraging one. That was, I canceled that. That was not respectful. Sorry, Lord. It was a, not a very encouraging first verse to, to memorize. James chapter one, two says, consider it pure joy. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, which can we just pause and have a moment of honesty? That sentence is absurd. That sentence is ridiculous. Consider it pure joy. Really? Like if, if, if you don't, if, when the guy cuts you off, consider that pure joy. Is that what you feel? No. Consider pure joy when your spouse is angry with you and they won't talk to you about it. When your, when your child is going through something, your teenager or your little kid is going through something and you can tell, you don't know what to do and it scares you. Like, where does this behavior problem go? Or where does this emotion, what is happening? I don't know. Consider that joy. And he goes on to explain why, why that Within, within the family of God, that sentence actually makes sense wow. because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance and perseverance must finish its work that you might be mature and complete. Yeah. That whole clause outside of the covering of a loving father makes no sense. Wow. In a universe where you're alone, trial is just trial. 
But in a universe where there's a God that loves you, he works all things yes. together and he uses them to actually transform you. So that word testing, that word testing is kind of a, a tough word for English because there's two words. There's two words in Greek that, they, that we translate to the word testing in the New Testament. One of them is the word bakan, which is the word we usually think of as testing, meaning like you test something to see if it works or not. It's, it's a word if like if a kid got a grade in school, it would be a test that he got the grade on. The other word, which is the word James is using, is the word nasa. Everybody say nasa. I like to do that sometimes. <laughs> nasa is a very different word. It is not a grade book word. God does not have a grade book for you. He is not trying to see, is, are they at a D? Are they a C? Oh, sh- I'm so proud of her. She got an A minus. That is not God's attitude. God already knows where your spirit is. He knows where your courage is. He knows how much control fear has in your life. This testing is the testing where we get to see our strength. And so it would be a word that they would use. The mountain climber took the mountain to test his ability. It's a testing of I'm going to press against this resistance until I feel my, cap- my capacity. I'm going to press against this resistance until I believe that I'm able to do I trust in my ability to do this. Are you with me? So there's a moment, there's a moment where, where Joseph takes over for Moses. And it, it's, if, you, if you've read the Old Testament, um, Exodus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua are one unbroken, we call them the books of the history, they're one unbroken narrative. And Joshua writes his own narrative. He's probably not the only guy that wrote it, but don't get tripped up on that. He writes his own narrative, and he basically says, this is what happened. God spoke to me when Moses' time came to an end, because God even told Moses, you're not going to, you have, you have become too identified. This is probably a different message, but basically, if I was going to sum it up, you've become too identified with this, with this people, with this generation of Israel. You're too identified with them, and you've actually lost your ability to hold faith for the promise. Not because he doesn't believe God is strong enough. That's not what I'm saying, but it's a different, it's a different challenge. He chose, Moses chose Israel over the promised land. And God blessed that, but he said, you're going you're gonna to die in the wilderness with Israel. Joshua takes over, and, he, and the beginning of Joshua's story, basically when God is commissioning Joshua, okay, I've got a big job for you, man. This is how he starts, this is how he starts his journey. I'm going to start at verse 6. I think they might have verse 5. but Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their, their, I swore to their ancestors to give them. Count with me. Be strong and very courageous. That's two. Be careful to obey all the laws the servant Moses gave you. Do not turn to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go, which is kind of an interesting, that's kind of an interesting guidance. Be courageous and careful. Be courageous, but also be careful. You know, like when, when I'm, when my daughter says, hey, can I climb on the rock or can I climb to the top of the jungle gym? I say, go for it. I don't say, be careful. My wife usually says, be careful. I say, you can do it, girl. I'm saying, go, be strong, be brave, be courageous. It doesn't occur to me to say, but also be very cautious. But he's saying, (laughs) if you want to be ready for this promised land, you need to be in alignment. So he says, be strong and courageous because you will lead these people 
Be careful to obey. He goes on to say, keep this book of the law on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written on it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged for the Lord God will be with you wherever you go. And here's, here's, here's something that I, I've literally had people argue with me about this. If God can tell you to do it, he's not talking about emotion. If God is saying, do not be afraid, he's not talking about the emotion of fear because he can't command you not to feel an emotion. He won't do that. That's not how emotion works. This is not like resist the devil and he will flee from you. The devil and emotion don't work the same way. When you resist emotion, it actually intensifies. Emotion, the resistance of an emotional experience actually sends a, brain, a signal to your limbic brain that tells you whatever I'm scared of is really powerful. The more I try not to feel something, the brain categorizes that as dangerous and it intensifies the emotion. Are you tracking? Can anybody relate to that? Have anybody ever told somebody, don't worry about it? Did it work? Because that's not how the brain works. I remember there was a moment several years ago where my daughter, my beautiful daughter Olivia, she was a lot smaller and she was losing one of her first teeth and she was real nervous about it. And I was really excited because I had never gotten to pull out a tooth before. <laughs> and so I got out the floss. That's how dad did it. You know, like I got out the floss and, I, and I'm trying to convince her to let my humongous adult hands into her mouth. And she is, she is locked down. And I remember saying to her, honey, 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 don't worry about it. And then she resists me. And I said, what did I tell you? Which didn't help either. And I, it was just this moment where it kind of woke me up. Like, oh. I'm doing the exact wrong thing. And so I said, actually, what are you feeling right now? And she didn't know how to name it. She was like five years old, four years old. She didn't know how to name it. So I said, are you feeling a little bit scared? Yeah. Can you tell me where you feel the scared? And she said, right here in her chest. I said, okay, I want you to put your hand on that. I said, I want you to tell that scared. I want you to tell it. It's okay. I've got you. And she didn't say it out loud, but I think she said it in her head. I said, I want you to know. So this is what I want you to do. I want you to feel the scared. And then I want you to think, what is, is taking this tooth out going to give me? And she knew I was going to get her ice cream. So, <laughs> so she said, okay, okay, okay. And I'm talking to her, and I'm empathizing. I'm saying, I get it. I was scared too. I understand. You can do this. And she let me, she let me tie it, and I pull it out. And her face, her face did that thing where, like, kids don't know what just happened. And then I said, I got it. And she had this big smile as blood was like coming down her face. And it's so powerful because it illustrates something that we, I don't think most of us understand, that fear is actually all, all, fear is like a full contact sport, right? It's very visceral. It's very in our bodies. We feel fear in our bodies. Fear is just the meaning that your brain gives to the level of activation in your nervous system. It's not actually the level of activation. So what that means is, if I get super excited because I'm going to go on a roller coaster, or I get really scared because I hear somebody downstairs at night who shouldn't be down there, my nervous system is doing the same thing. It's called activation. It's basically lighting up like a Christmas tree. The difference between those two emotions is my brain, the amygdala in my brain is sending out cortisol. 
And it's saying danger, danger, danger. And it becomes consuming because fear wants to hijack your focus. Fear wants to say, I don't want you focusing on anything else right now. I want you focused right where I'm paying attention because there's something dangerous. But as soon, have you ever noticed, like, it's weird that people like roller coasters. Or it's weird, isn't it weird that people like scary movies? I don't like scary movies, but I know that there are some weirdos who do like scary movies. (laughs) The reason they like scary movies is because our brain has this incredible ability. As soon as your brain logs the safety, as, logs the danger as resolved, your brain deposits, it starts to release dopamine, which is why you've probably felt it, which is why my daughter went from ah to ah with blood coming down her face. Because it's the same activation. Fear transforms into faith as soon as we see our salvation, as soon as we see the protection, as soon as we see God's goodness and God's power, which is why you can come into a place like this and you can hear a house of testimony. And the thing that felt hopeless, all of a sudden there's hope there. It's the same activation in our body, but my brain is saying, maybe this is actually... Maybe, maybe God is in this. Maybe God is going to tell a story with my life. Maybe God, something incredible is going to come out of it. So there's this, uh, there's this phenomenon that we have to understand. That when God is saying, okay, I want you to get ready. And three times in a row, he says, I need you to make a, a, a conscious, focused decision to be strong and courageous. I need you. Because the problem is, you're not going to not feel fear. Why would God tell Joseph, Joshua, don't be afraid, be courageous, unless, of course, he is struggling with fear. He feels fear. You got to think this guy was, if you remember that triangle, he was discipled by Moses, right? He was discipled and mentored by the greatest leader Israel has ever known, a leader whose career ended with failure, incredible, incredible life of leadership and power and success, but ultimately did not enter the promised land. And he watched Moses struggle. He watched him walk in power. He watched him trust God. He watched God show up and transform, but he also watched Moses struggle. And it actually says, in Exodus 33, it says that when all the people left the tabernacle, Joshua lingered. So Joshua we go back to that triangle. Joshua is somebody who lingered in the presence of God. He loved God's presence. The thing that separates, as a leader, that separates Joshua from the nation of that, that first generation of Israel, because Joshua is part of them, the thing that separates them is he learned how to see joy in the trial. He learned that when we are in the wilderness, every single time I wake up and I see manna, that means God is still with us. Every single time we face an enemy, that means God is has got a destiny, he's got a direction, he's got a, he's got a promise in our life. Are you tracking? Yeah. Last service, Pastor Matt said, Brian, I think when they're quiet, man, they're just like really leaning in. I'm like, you call that quiet? That last service was like awakened version of quiet. I love it. <laughs> Y'all should come to some other churches with me. What we want, what we want to be able to glean from that story is that God is saying, how do we get ready for battle because Israel thought they were ready for battle. They walked out of Egypt like an army. They were feeling themselves. They felt like an army ready for battle, but they weren't because they had not been battle hardened. How do we get ready for battle? The way that God prepares us for battle is right down there in the trial. It's exactly what James says. 
because in the testing of your faith, you develop, we are, we are made ready for battle in the trial. You know, several weeks ago, I was talking to a guy before, before Emerge started. And he was in my office and we were talking about it and he was considering not going. I'm like, well, I, I'm kind of surprised. He was really excited about it. He said, well, I've been every year for like three years in a row. And every year I write down the same word on that board. Every year I, I throw the same burden board and the same word into that fire. And I hope maybe this is the year that God will set me free. I think, man, I know exactly what you're talking about. That it actually, it's becoming, you do that too many times, it actually becomes painful to hope, huh? Hope deferred makes the heart sick, Proverbs teaches us. And what God is saying is if you come home from Emerge and you put all your trust in the encounter that happened at Emerge and you neglect the process, you don't find joy and you don't stay present to the process that God wants to actually deepen your faith, then you're going to miss the promise that this moment, that this is the moment where you can say, okay, actually my goal my goal for this emerge isn't a dramatic emerge story. My goal for this emerge is actually starts the day I get home. My goal for this emerge, I'm going to be fully present. I'm going to get reckless. I'm going to, I'm going to go after God. I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm going to let men see me. I'm going to, I'm going to do whatever I need to do there. But emerge for me, my, my success starts when I get home. And that first week I show up for men's prayer. And then the second week, I show up for men's yes. prayer. And then three months later, I show up for men's prayer. And now the room is a little bit smaller than it was the week after Emerge, right? And then six months later, because those, the men in that room, those are the guys that next year around the fire pit, they're going to be saying, you guys, I was right there last year. Let me hold hope for you. Let me hold faith for you. Because I know what it feels like to lose hope. I know what it feels like to do the same board again and again and again. And we stay in that training. And we say this, just like Moses. When he's, when, he's, when he's guiding people to walk across the Red Sea, Moses says to Israel, stand firm. This, meaning the Red Sea, the army of Egyptians that are running at you to kill you, this is where you will see the deliverance of the Lord. And that's what James is saying. Wherever you're at, whatever the trial looks like, whatever the uncertainty, that vulnerability, that, that fear, that risk, whatever it looks like, God is saying this this is what I want to show you deliverance looks like. When you think about changing fear into courage, it doesn't happen when we try and be less afraid. What you resist and emotionally, what you resist will persist. Fear converts into courage when we redirect our focus. Just like they say in Joshua, where he says, be strong and courageous. Keep the word in your heart. Keep the word on your mind. Meditate on it. Redirect your focus. Because what, what happens when somebody comes into therapy, they usually have been told for many years, like I've been struggling with anxiety. They usually have been told for many years that you don't need to worry about it. You don't need to be scared. Stop. Just like me and Livy. Don't worry about it. And that doesn't work. But what they're going to do, if, they know, if they're working with somebody who really knows me, like anxiety, for example, they're going to break that, down fear, that fear down into little pieces. And they're going to they're going to face those little pieces and they're going to reassure themselves, this is where I build my courage. This is where I see my strength. This is where I get to discover my resilience. And as they do that, looking at the enemy, they have an experience of them as a brave person, not a fearful person. Fear, the antidote to fear is not trying to be less afraid. The antidote to fear is to experiencing yourself as courageous. 
And what it does is it actually rewrites the fear memory. They call it fear extinction. So now I see the same stimulus. I love that story that Rich shared because what it teaches like, man, every single time something shouldn't work and does, my brain is rewriting the fear narrative. It's rewriting what that stimulus means. You're gonna get to the point, it was the same, same thing last week when I was at another church. A guy came up and said, every year, a vision builders, God has given them a bigger number. Every year it scares them, and every year it gets bigger, and every year God has done more in their finances. Like, man, that's exactly what it is. I couldn't have done, five years ago, I couldn't have done what God called me to this year, but he built my faith that year. And then he built my trust the next year, and then he built my courage the next year. That we, we extinguish fear by building and experiencing trust and courage in God. Are you tracking? Yes. Let, me, uh, let me pause this. Let me get to take a second, just close your eyes. Because I know when I process through this, even right now as I'm talking about it, God wakes those, wakes those things up. He says, man, look at this thing you've been avoiding. Look at this thing that you get really defensive about. Look at this area of your finances, this area in your relationship where there's anger, where there's apathy. Apathy, guys, apathy is not a lack of caring. Apathy is I care so much that I'm turning it off. I'm numbing it. Apathy is an indication of deep, deep meaning. And so when you face these things, you want to ask, man, what does courage look like here? Because maybe fear has come in and it's stolen my growth process because I'm avoiding this thing now. Or maybe fear has come in and it's actually stolen the joy that God wants to give me in the trial. Because joy is how God rebrands fear into courage as I experience joy in the uncertainty. And so if that's, if that's you, if you, if you relate to one of those areas where you see that fear is trying to rob, raise your hand. I just want to pray for you guys. Wow. All over the room, man. Praise God. Lord, I thank you for every hand. I thank you that this moment is a turning point, that this moment is a moment where they are enacting courage to raise their hand and believe and trust that you are going to take them one step further. Maybe they wake up tomorrow and they're not completely escaped from the trial. Maybe they're still in the trial, but Lord, we thank you that you are going to teach them to have joy in the trial, that you are actually going to hold them there until the trial doesn't feel like a trial anymore, until you've built their courage, their trust in you, until you've built their faith, they can face the next giant because you want to take them from glory to glory. God, we thank you that you have never left us alone in the wilderness. We thank you that every hardship, though you did not bring it, you do not bring evil into our lives. You use everything for our good and you grow us up and you fill our hearts with trust, with faith, with courage. You provide. And Lord, I pray that you would teach us to experience your power. Will you teach us to walk in trust in you? We thank you. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Man, thank you so much, guys. As Pastor Matt comes up, yeah, yeah, no, come up here. I just want to, I just want to leave with that encouragement that, um, I think this thing gets transformed. Fear gets transformed not by, getting, by finding the workaround, but by actually discovering joy in the fear process. So, yeah. Thanks, brother. Wow. What an amazing word. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Hey, listen. 
For more information about our church, go to www.awakenchurch.com or subscribe to our YouTube channel if you haven't already and download our app. It is amazing. It is chock full of incredible messages, information about upcoming events, and you can even support our ministry if you feel so inclined. We loved having you with us today. We look forward to seeing you again. God bless you. Live a life that is transformative. Bye for now.